Father, we're thankful that uh, you never stop working, that you sent your son Jesus to be alive and at work and one with us, to move in our hearts and uh, change us, even when we don't realize it. We pray that he would today, Lord, as we continue to worship and uh, hear from your word. We pray that these words would be true, that these words would be yours and not mine, and that as a result, uh, you would bless your people, that you would feed them, that you would change us, change me, and bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Hey, my name is Pastor Jeremy. Welcome here. If you're just joining us, we're super, super thankful that you're here. Um, I want to ask you a question as you're, I guess you've already found your seats since you brought them yourself, but I do want to ask you a question. Um, I have with me this morning a cup. How many of the rest of you brought a cup with you? Hold it up, please. Wow, that is almost as unanimous as a church gets. That is impressive. Way to go, everybody. This is a cup that I have with me. It's not my favorite cup. I actually do have a favorite cup. How many of you have a favorite cup? Yes? Why is it your favorite cup? Shout it out. Let me hear it. You take it wherever you go, okay? What else? It's the perfect size, okay? What makes your cup so special? Anybody else? The color. You like the color. Okay, that's creative. It holds coffee, of course. What else would a cup do? Very good. I'm sure there's a lot of answers out there. I can't hear them all, but I know that I have my own favorites for my own reasons, and they're probably not even good reasons, but one of the things I like about my favorite cup is it actually has a big enough handle that I can hold on to. You know, I can't do the little pinky two-finger thing. I like drop it or break it or shatter it or something. So I need something. I get the man hand on and just hold it and feel confident and comfortable. It's got to be the right size, color, shape, whatever. I'm a pragmatist. It's got to work. Well, this morning we're going to talk about cups a little bit, um, drinking cups that is, and in particular we're going to talk about God's cup for us. God's cup for us, and our theme will be that we should drink deep of it. God's cup for us. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 33, that's a 33rd verse of the 10th chapter of the book of Mark. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to them. Often I have a big, nice black Bible that I can hold onto, but there's so many things blowing around the last few weeks, I just printed it out and clipped it to my binder. So I am reading to you from God's Word. I'm just going to be looking at my binder today. But if you have an electronic device, it's got a Bible, or you've got a physical Bible, whatever you have, I invite you to turn to the 10th chapter of the book of Mark, and uh, we will watch as we see Jesus dive deep into what's going on with these disciples and their hearts and their minds and attitudes. And it's really cool because it's kind of a Q&A session with Jesus. I don't know if you've ever wanted one of those or asked for one of those. Like, if I could just ask him a question or two, or maybe he would have a question for me. We just get this sorted. Well, here it is. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 33, says this. Actually, we're going to start in verse 35. Uh, Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, um, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, well, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when they, and when the ten, the others, heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them all over to him and said, Hey, 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 you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's going on here? Well, if you look at the context, I skipped verses 33 and 34 on purpose just a minute ago. I'm actually going to pull out my phone here. But if you zoom back um, two verses, what is going on in verses 33 and 34? Tell your neighbor what is going on in verses 33 and 34. All right, what was it? Yeah. Jesus is predicting his death. See, they're headed up to Jerusalem. They're on the way. And he tells them, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him. They will mock him. They will spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Imagine this. You come home from work. And it just happens to be the worst day of your entire life. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. I don't know what that is. You can imagine in your head how bad it would be. And you walk in the door and you're like, hey, hun, guess what? Blah. And you just spill everything terrible that ever happened to you. And then, and then she's like, do you mind like cutting the grass? Because it's a little shaggy on that side. You'd probably be like, what? <laughs> what in the world just happened there? Did you hear anything I just said? And I just put it in a male-female context. Probably it's females that are having the males miss what they said more than the males missing the females. But here's the point. Jesus has just got done bearing his soul to his disciples. He's disclosed to them the most agonizing and torture of torturous event that has ever happened in the history of humanity, where he himself will bear the full weight of God's wrath against all of us. The sin of humanity from the beginning to the very end is poured out on Jesus, and he will take it all in one fatal swoop. And he's telling them, this is going to be bad. I'm going to get mocked. I'm going to get rejected. I'm going to get spit on. I'm going to get crucified. It's going to be terrible. And they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, is it... We want you to do something for us. 
this is so dismissal. This is incredibly out of place. First of all, they're the disciples, and he's the master. He's the rabbi. So if anybody's telling anybody to do anything, it should be him telling them. But here, in this moment, where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has just disclosed his death, the disciples are like, yeah, no, whatever, never mind. Hey, do this for us. It is crazy. It is so out of place. It's unbelievable. If I were Jesus at that point, this would have been the moment to pull out the forced lightning and zap them. Zip, zap. Or maybe I would think of them as my 12, my team, and I'd say, you know what? Hold on a minute, guys. I might look at John the Baptist and say, hey, John, uh, I'll give you Peter, James, and John for that guy right there. Can we just swap these out? Do you mind trading a few disciples? I might want to improve my team here a little bit because they're not doing so great. They're kind of missing it. And in fact, this is the third time Jesus has said this. So they've missed it over and over and over again. They're just not getting it. What's so cool about Jesus? He's way different than me. And instead of zapping them or trading them or anything else, instead, he asked them a question. Very gently and patiently, Jesus begins to work in them and work with them. He doesn't blast them right away or tell them how wrong or inappropriate they are. But instead, he simply asks a question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Did you hear that question? What do you want Jesus to do for you? If you're sitting at home today, ask yourself that question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? That must have been an incredible question to be asked. Surely there are many things that pop into our mind. What would you answer? Jesus asked you that question. I can think of a few. They said to him, here's what they wanted, because these are these zealots or these passionate people about their country and their kingdom and everything else. And they're like, ooh, 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 when you come in glory, let us be right next to you, like at the front of the parade, at the front of the line. Grant us to sit on your right and your left. There's the request. In, in clear, like front and center view, the raw ambition of their heart, their selfishness, the fact that they're only thinking about themselves and not the suffering that he's going to go through. They didn't say, let us help you carry the load. Let us reduce, lease your burden. Jesus, how can we help you as you go through this terrible time? No, 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 they didn't say that. They're like, how can you help us? Make us number one and number two. Jesus says to them, again, instead of blasting them, he says, You don't know what you're asking, guys. You really don't. How many of you heard that country song? (laughs) If you listen to country, you know which one this is. I thank God for unanswered prayers. There's probably a few of us who have prayed the wrong thing at a time or two. And God says no, or wait, or not now, or something totally different. Here in verse 38, he says, guys, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what you're asking for. And listen to this question he asked him. Are you able 
to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to drink from that cup? Well, I'm not. No way, Lord. Whew. Step back. Hang on. <laughs> Feel free. I am not ready to take the full wrath of God. No way. I'm not even ready to take part of it. I don't even want to take the judgment for my own sins, let alone everybody else's. There's no way I want to drink from that cup. I don't want to be crucified. I don't want to be tortured. I don't want to die. No way. Yet the disciples, again, still not thinking, just jump in a completely thoughtless answer. We are able. We can. We can do it. Sure, Lord. How many times have we asked God for something and we're like, we know we can do this. Come on, God, give it to us. Oh, we can handle it. If I had that kind of money, I wouldn't blow it. No way. That person's an idiot. But if you gave it to me, I would definitely use it right. (laughs) I'd never mess up like they would. Oh, yeah, we're able. Sure, we can do it. (laughs) Jesus says to them, verse 39, the cup that I drink, actually, guys, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And listen to this in verse 41. When they heard it, that's the ten, the others, they began to be indignant at James and John. If you ever wondered whether or not the Bible is true or not, here's your proof. Is that true to human experience? Oh yeah. The Bible is not shy about describing how we really are and that's why we need a Savior so bad. And you look at this verse in verse 41 and it's no surprise we almost read glance over it. But if we look a little deeper and we think about our own experience, we will understand what is going on here. And the reality is this. It's very much like if you give a child a cookie. Perhaps you've heard the nursery rhyme or the book, if you give a mouse a cookie and there's this long thing. What happens if you have more than one child and you give one of them a cookie? What will happen? Nobody knows? What will the others say? What about me? Not fair. How come they get to? I want one too. Blah, 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 blah. You know how it goes. It doesn't matter what it is. You give them something, even if it's a punishment, maybe the others will ask for it too. I don't know. Everybody wants what everybody else gets. There's something about our fallen humanity that is incredibly selfish and drives our envy. And you see it here in verse 41. Particularly, it says, when they heard, when they heard, as soon as they heard it, As soon as they heard it, that was me, Kyle. I was just moving my mic because it's brushing my face. All right. As soon as they heard it, boom, an emotional response. What does that tell you? That tells you about their hearts. Their responses demonstrate their heart. And when they see something else or something that someone else may get and they don't get to, because you know, James and John asked for it. And if Jesus says yes, then that means the other ten are out. There's only one spot on the right or the left. If they get it, hey, that means I don't get it. And so sure enough, they're like, oh, that James and John, we're going to get them. 
Just like little kids. Or maybe like adults. Do we ever do that? Yeah, I think so. It may not be a cookie, but what about a car? Maybe not a car, a job, a wife, a life, a whatever. And we're pretty good benchmarkers, aren't we? Because we look around and we try to see how we measure up or stack up. I mean, we've been doing this since we were little kids. And it just continues all throughout adulthood. I can remember in seminary, we're standing at the mailboxes. Kids, there were these things. There were little squares and they put stuff... Oh, never mind. Anyways, we were standing at the mailboxes. And they would hand out our papers and we'd look and immediately, what do we do? We see our grade and then we look to the person on the right or left and what do we say? What'd you get? And I began to benchmark myself, you know? I mean, if most of the people around me got got a B and I got a B plus, I'm feeling pretty good. But if most of the people around me got a B plus and I got a C plus, I'm not feeling so great. Why? Because I'm measuring myself against everybody else around me. We do this all the time. Pull up at a stoplight. Look at your neighbor. Whatever. We constantly benchmark ourselves against others. And then, when they get something we don't, all of a sudden we react. Even if it's not externally, it's internally. We feel something. Our emotions respond. And if we're not careful, our reactions will show the same thing the disciples did. Our indignation reveals our envy. And we begin to feel contempt or disdain for someone else. I want what they got. Why not me? Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus says to me right away, "Um, Jeremy, you don't really know what you're asking for. You see something in their life, but you don't know everything else. You have no idea what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup, Jeremy? Are you able to drink from that cup, church? Looking back at the text again, we remember that the two disciples, James and John, asked to be on Jesus' left and right. Here's the question. What did Jesus just tell them was about to happen? See how good your memories are. What's going to happen? He's going where? To the cross. One cross? How many? Who was on his left and right? Do you really want to be on Jesus' left and right? On Jesus' left and right is a cross. And those who follow him get to drink what he will drink and be baptized with what he is baptized. Paul later in the New Testament says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. We don't really realize it. We don't even know what to ask for. We often ask for the wrong things. And yet Jesus is so extremely patient with us, just like his disciples. Over and over again, he keeps working. He doesn't stop working. And he looks inside of us and says, I know what you're asking for, but I actually know what you need. 
What you need is to follow Jesus. And following Jesus means that you get to be crucified. Now, maybe not physically today like he was back then. But every single day, you're going to have to make the intentional effort to die to yourself. There's going to come up desires for your own self, for your own way, for your own thing. And you're going to have to put those to death and kill them. Denying the flesh and sacrificing. Say, well, pastor, you're being kind of hard here, aren't you? What about the following Jesus is a blast thing? Isn't it great? Well, not always. Look here at verse 45. What does 45 say? Even the Son of Man. Even the Son of Man had to do this. This isn't unique to us. The King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of glory, the one who is and was and is to come, the one who is riding back on a white horse to establish his kingdom, even he came to serve and not be served and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, I suppose it's easy to look at somebody else and say, well, how come they got to, or how come they didn't? But try doing that to Jesus. Try pointing your finger at him and saying, how come... Oops. Not so much. So I don't really get away with wanting the life that he had. It's mine to look a lot different. So why doesn't it? Even the Son of Man, that great majestic title from Daniel chapter 7, he himself came to do two things, to serve and to give, to serve and to give. Can you imagine if your life was characterized by those two verbs? I'm here, why? To serve and give. Why'd you come to church today? To get? Or is it to serve and to give? Even the Son of Man, even Jesus himself. I know we have dreams, I know we have ambitions, I know we have desires. It's really hard for a sinful human heart to sort those out and say what are godly and what are not. But I think we probably know more than we admit about what is godly and what is not, and what is selfish and what is not. We begin to feel those desires. Maybe we even act on those desires and then we got to ask ourselves, at the end of that, how do we feel? We feel joyed, we feel fulfilled, we feel satisfied, we feel discouraged, lack of contentment and a want for more. If it's the latter and not the former, then I would say to you, what is it you really want? It wasn't that. Because it didn't work. It seems like the harder path, but it's actually the better one. You see, there's the cup that we want. That's the cup of ease. Just like the disciples were like, yeah, give me that. Give me what they got. I'll take one of those. I want to be first or second. But then there's the cup that we get, which is dying to that and putting to death those desires. And finally, there's the cup that is best. There's the cup that we want, the cup that we get, and the cup 
that is best. So which cup is that, Pastor Jeremy? Which cup is the best? Well, it's an interesting thing. Is you, if you study the Bible much, there's some of these themes that run throughout, and the cup is actually one of those themes. We celebrate it in the New Testament as the Lord's Supper. We say, you know, take the cup, you know, do this or do that. But it didn't just like drop out of heaven and start there. It's this long thing that God has developed for a long time. In the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, the way the cup is generally described is a cup of wrath. It is God's fury. It is his hatred and anger against all that is bad. And you don't want that cup. When he starts through the prophets talking about pouring out his cup, he's talking about the cup of his wrath, and you want to stay away. That is not a good thing. When God's wrath comes, he obliterates and destroys. Isaiah, I'm just going to skim through some verses so you know I'm not making this up. You don't have to follow along. You can write down the reference, chase it later. Isaiah 51.17 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dredges the bowl, the cup of staggering. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The idea is judgment, destruction, wrath. That is the Old Testament picture of the cup. So what changed? Well, Mark chapter 14, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but you probably are familiar with this. Verse 36, Jesus, so he's predicted that he's going to be crucified now. He's on his way to the cross and he's praying the night before in a garden. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. What does he ask? Remove this cup from me the cup of god's wrath that's been stored up for the day of judgment is a pour out entirely upon christ yet here is the perfect picture of what even the son of man had to do not my will but what you will dying to that selfish desire if you will to not take that on, but say, no, Lord, not your will, but mine. That's what we have to do. So soon the, the um, bad guys come, and they're about to take Jesus away. And Peter tries to defend him, still <laughs> not listening to what Jesus said. Jesus earlier said, I got to do this, I got to do this. Jesus, anytime Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross, he's doing the wrong thing. So this time, Peter pulls out his sword, John chapter 18, verse 11, and chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest, most likely aiming for the guy's throat, but he's a fisherman, not a swords fighter, and so he missed. And Jesus heals the guy and says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, there's a cup we want, and the cup we get, and the cup that's best. And Jesus has realized now which cup is best. He says, I've got to drink this one. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. But that's the one for me. 
What would you ask Jesus to do? Do you know what you're asking? Are you able to drink from his cup? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning verse 25. You've probably heard me read this a number of times. It says, in the same way also, after supper, he took the cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. And when we read this text, we have to read it a different way. Yes, it's true that he picked up or he took the cup. But even more so, it is true. Jesus took the cup. Shall he not drink from the cup that was given to him? Jesus took the cup so that we wouldn't have to. He took the cup of wrath so that we could receive the cup of blessing. And that's what it means for him to be a good shepherd. Our cup runneth over. Surely goodness and love will follow us all the days of our life. Because Jesus took the cup of God's wrath. There's the cup we want, ease. There's a cup we get, dying to that. And the cup that is best, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He took the cup. But fear not, little flock. Do not be discouraged. Because Jesus is patient. I don't want that cup. You don't want that cup. Disciples didn't want that cup. But over and over again, each day, he's going to help you. He's going to encourage you to die to yourself. To give up those sinful desires. To put away all that is behind. And pursue the prize that is set before. Jesus is patient. He never stops working. Drink deeply of him. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus who died on the cross and took the full cup of your wrath. Thank you for the cup of blessing that he has poured out on us. Bought by his precious blood, the ransom that he paid to give his life for many. Lord, I thank you for the many who are gathered here today to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, help us to receive the cup from him. In his name we pray. Amen.